Actually, if you would have been listening. If you were listening to the preacher last week, he talked about steel and iron. What did, was that last week? Ida, were you paying attention? Sometimes I listen to sermons throughout the week, and I get confused on which sermon it was, but. Zero. So she's zero. There's a van and a truck out there. Yeah, yeah no, no cars. We can't get in the car.
Good morning. <coughs> and this beautiful day that our Lord has made for you and I. Crisp morning. Harvest being conducted out in the fields. Here the machines running. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? Let's go over a couple of announcements. Uh, offering envelopes in the box as usual. Andrea, still our wonderful contact number. Uh, days of praise and the acts of facts are still on the counter there and uh, looks like they got good information in them. Uh, hopefully you folks have been noticing the work is continuing on the portico. Uh, our contractor has a few more things to put up uh, then he's going to have the contractor show up and put the, the actual tin on the roof. Uh, I think there's a misnomer here. Are, are we having communion today or, or next week? Okay, because it says next week. So, okay. Uh, communion service is after regular service today. Uh, short. Okay. Someone put this up here for me to throw me off intentionally. <laughs> and it worked. Okay. Uh, Good, thank you. Uh, after our communion service, there will be no uh, evening service tonight, so that will resume again next week. Uh, Doug Clayton is taking care of his father this week. He's in, in somewhat uh, difficult straits. Uh, after taking his mother to the hospital and she had abdominal surgery uh, this past week, She's still there, but uh, he, the, he didn't give me all the details. She's going to be there probably for a couple more days. So in the meantime, Doug is, is ministering and trying to help his father get through uh, the days down there. His dad's 86. He's, he has a lot of health issues and uh, having to do with the legs and just general moving around. So I would, I would uh, ask all of you to keep the Clayton's in your prayers. It just seems to keep going on and on and on for them. They are living in their their camper now, so I think added prayer for that with the winter coming up would, would be in order. Uh, I think it's going to be tougher on, on Doug than Laura because I think she gravitates to that kind of stuff. Uh, Doug not so much, but uh, can we have an update on Jessica? Uh, somebody have an update? She had an antibody infusion on Friday, which is um, you take the antibodies from someone's blood to, that had had COVID and they, they infused you into you, um, and it helps you fight COVID. And it's either you get better right away or you get worse and then you get better. Hers was she got worse, and I don't know how she is today, but Jerry talked to her last night and she was doing okay last night. Um, I don't think they're great, but as of right now, Mercy's test has come back negative, but they're still waiting on Pearson and Dan's test to come back. So just keep praying for him. Is Dan home from work then? Or? That I don't know. I think he is. Okay. But I'm not 100% about that. I keep texting him, so <laughs> yeah, he's texting me back. So much to pray about, isn't there? So much going on, and it just seems to overwhelm us. Uh, 
But I think if we keep ourselves focused, uh, looking to the Lord in all things, uh, that gives us a better perspective. So, any other announcements or things that I may carry? Pastor Loker's memorial uh, service this Thursday. This Thursday, Pastor Loker's service. Okay. It's at their church. Okay. Terry, you had something? It's Pam. Pam. Jenny has Again, so much to pray about. And what about Jolene? I haven't heard anything about the uh, Offenbeckers. It's the notes and said she's on oxygen, but I don't think she's on oxygen anymore. <clears throat> I, I don't think that lasts a, but a few days. She, she, when you have COVID, you go up and down. You feel really good one day, and then you're like, oh, I'm good. But then the next day, you tank again. Um, <clears throat> she was technically supposed to have been able to go back to work on Friday, but I don't know. She did not go back to work on Friday. I told her early in the week, like, ask the doctor to get you off because you will not be able to go on Friday because you'll be, feel horrible still. So I think they're at the total exhaustion part. I think they're through the scary part. Um, but I'm not, I'm, Andrew's doing better. I know that. I don't think anything keeps Andrew down. <clears throat> no, he was down for a few days. Was he? Yeah. A tough little guy. Yeah. Okay, if we have no more uh, announcements, uh, let me refer you to Second uh, Peter, chapter two, verses four through ten, and that is going to be on page eighteen ninety five in your pew Bible.
would you stand with us as we begin our service and opening prayer? George, may I prevail upon you to lead us? Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house again. We thank you uh, that indeed you have watched over us as a people and that you have encouraged us through your word. We pray that you would continue to bless our little church and use it for thy namesake. We ask for pastor today that you would lift him up need a word from you. Thus saith the Lord has great importance to our heart and soul and we pray that that's what we'll be listening for today. Bless your word. Bless our time in your house. Help us to serve you as we are. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Remain standing, please. We take your red hymnal and turn to number 508, 508 in the Red Trinity.
have a favorite hymn this morning from anyone? Lydia? Uh, 642 in the red. 642 in the red. <coughs> Do you have a reason for this one this morning? Not really. Not really. I just like it. All right. Fair enough. Six, four, two in the red. <clears throat> Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 23, 
verses 1 through 20, and that'll be on page 32 of your pew Bible. And when you come to that passage, please stand. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 20. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the public of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, if you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephraim, son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephraim the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephraim, in their hearing, listen to me if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Ephraim answered Abraham, listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephraim's terms and waited out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Father in heaven, as we continue on in service, we pray your presence among us, that you send your Holy Spirit to comfort us those that are in you, Lord, and we pray that pastors preaching this hour 
would convict the lost and draw them to you. This we ask in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. We take your red, red hymnal again and turn to number 452. 452 in the red.
our scripture text this morning is Genesis 23. In our series on the patriarchs, our last lesson dealt with sacrificial faith. It consisted of a test of Abraham's faith to see just how far he would go to obey God. Even if God's will seemed to be outrageous, even immoral, namely, because God commanded Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering in an obedient act of worship. Faith in God means, of course, that one does not simply believe that God exists, but rather that God's word is the truth by which we must govern our lives, and not the laws of men which may and often do run contrary to the laws of God. I remember some time ago the county clerk in Kentucky was facing such a battle because of the Supreme Court of the United States' decision to legalize homosexual marriages. But she was remanded to jail for refusing to issue marriage licenses to a gay couples on the ground that God had established marriage between a man and a woman. She claimed that the law of God superseded the law of man. What a gutsy woman. Wow. I think the same could be said for abortion, which the Supreme Court has ruled to be legal. But morally, and because of religious convictions, doctors and nurses have refused to perform abortions on religious grounds, and their refusal has been upheld. Wow. They are not thrown in jail for their personal convictions on this issue. So you can see where we're at. We just kind of depends on the, on the issue, depends on the court, the magistrates. Who's, who's hearing the case and so on. We learn that God is the one who is the standard of morality. He's the definer of right and wrong. And as people of faith, we side with Peter's protest to the Sanhedrin, which was this. Peter said to them, we must obey God rather than men. Hmm. Now you've got to be willing... <laughs> To suffer the consequences when you do that. What happened to Peter and John? Well, they were beaten for refusing to obey the laws of men. We learned in last study that God stopped Abraham from sacrificing Isaac, but he was willing to obey God. 
And that demonstrated his true faith. Today's study brings us to the end of Sarah's life and how Abraham honored her. and More importantly, how God received her in her home going. So as we come to today's study, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for, we're going to say it in advance of our study, Sarah's life. Thank you for Abraham's life. Here's a couple that lived in a pagan culture. We live in a pagan culture. But back then, boy, they they put their life literally on the line. If you did something to go against the norms of the day, you, you were in jeopardy of not only imprisonment, but losing your life. And yet, They said, we must obey God rather than men. We need that same resolve in our day because the issues are severe. Wickedness is rampant. People have no compass. They're not churchgoers. They're not hearing the gospel. Preachers aren't preaching the gospel. So we're in a sea of quagmire. Trump calls it a swamp. It is a swamp, moral swamp. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to keep our head above the filth, the water that will drown us if we do not. We do thank you that your love and care for us is real, not imaginary. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning is Genesis 23, and we're looking at the subject of Sarah's home going. First thing I would say is that Sarah had a long life. Look at verse 1. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Comparatively speaking, 127 years seems very old old to us because while modern science, healthy exercise, proper diet are promised in our society to, to be the way to extend one's life, not many people live up to 100 years, let alone 127 years. I was pleased that my dad made it to 100 years. He died two days later. So I praise God. He had that sustaining grace. 127 years. Well, it is comparative because we know that the generations living prior to the flood lived well into the hundreds. For example... Adam lived 930 years, Genesis 5, verse 5. Seth, his son, 912 years, Genesis 5, verse 6. Enosh, Seth's son, 905 years, right down the line until we read of a descendant who lived 969 years. You know his name, Methuselah, 
chapter 5, verse 27, the oldest man on biblical record. Now, these lengthy years of life were necessary because the earth's population was only expanding incrementally as people married and had babies. Up until the flood, longevity was essential. But we read in Genesis 6 verse 1, when men began to increase in number on the earth, so this population explosion had a a detrimental effect, morally true, because with the increase in population came an increase in wickedness and defiance of God. Genesis 6 verse 5, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And that resulted in the great judgment of the flood, you remember. Genesis 7 verse 6 says, Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. 600 years. Altogether, I'm reading scripture, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. Genesis 9, verse 29. After the flood, the longevity of people dropped significantly. Shem, Noah's son, 500 years. Genesis 11, verse 11. Arphaxed, his grandson, 403 years. Chapter 11, verse 12. Peleg, Three generations later died at age 209. So you see what's going on here. Down, down, down. The length of year is going. Nahor, Abraham's grandson, 119 years. Genesis 11, verse 24. And now we read of Sarah, and she's dying at age 127. Now think about this. She actually died young if we compare her to the pre-flood generations. But she belongs to the post-flood generations, and in that environment she had lived a long time. What we must acknowledge is that young or old, death is not in our hands. For God reminds us through the prophet David, all the days ordained for me, says David, were written in your book, before one of them ever came to be. Psalm 139, verse 16. That's quite a statement. Let me read it again. All the days ordained for me. Only one person that can ordain, that's God. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Someone will say, well, what about suicide? Doesn't self-murder show that man can control his own destiny? Well, after his betrayal of Christ for the sum of 30 pieces of silver, Judas attempted to return the money, but the Jewish council refused to take it. And so we read, Judas threw the money into the temple and left And then he went away and he hanged himself. Matthew 27, verse 5. This is very true. 
But what is also true was God's predetermination foretold about Judas by Christ himself. Here's what he said. While I was with them, that is the disciples, Jesus says, while I was with them, I protected them, I kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. John 17, verse 12. So Peter reminds the brethren that Judas' death and the manner of it was a fulfillment of scripture. What scripture? Psalm 109, to be precise, from which he quotes in Acts 1, verse 15 and following, In those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and he said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number. He shared in the ministry. With reward he got it for his wickedness, Judas bought a field that posthumously. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out, which tells me that the hangman's rope broke. No contradiction. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akadema, that is, the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, Psalm 69, verse 25. And, quoting another psalm, may another take his place of leadership, Psalm 109, verse 8. And this was quoted by Peter in Acts 1, verse 15 and following. What I am saying is that arrogant men think that their lives are in their own hands. Even suicide, right? That's, that's in their hands. Well, Judas and Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Cleopatra and Mark Antony committed suicide to avoid surrendering to Emperor Octavius. We could add Charles Boyer, the French actor, Eva Braun and Adolf Hitler, took cyanide capsules to avoid the capture by the Allies in World War II. Ernest Hemingway, the American poet. Many celebrities, actors, actresses, Robin Williams, Marilyn Monroe, Vincent Van Gogh, the artist, some from depression, some from being out of their minds due to their use of illicit drugs. The list numbers into the hundreds. But in all these cases and more, the Bible affirms, in his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Proverbs 16, verse 9. The promise given by God, if you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, 
then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent because he loves me, says the Lord. I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him. I will honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Psalm 91, verse 9 and following. And to children, Paul, quoting the scripture, says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Ephesians 6, verse 2, verse 3. Now to Sarah's credit, she exemplified the godly woman, whom Peter commended, saying, Let me read it for you. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may also be won without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of an inner self the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and don't give way to fear. 1 Peter 3, the first six verses. That said, Sarah was blessed by God with a long life. So secondly, we understand that Abraham honored Sarah in her death. And he did this in two ways. Number one, verse, verse two, he mourned her passing. The scripture says Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Sometimes in jest, when in jest, joking, not jest, my sister, my daughter. <laughs> That's a different jest. Sometimes in jest, when Dee and I were in some kind of verbal tug of war over some decision or some planned activity, I would say to her, you're going to miss me when I'm gone. And then she and I would both laugh. Little did I know that I was predicting the future concerning her. In a deeper sense, all joking aside, don't we all want to be assured in our hearts that when we die, we're going to be missed? Oh, I know that in rage, people have said, I hope you die. But I want to believe that such words are said in anger or they're said in frustration. They're not really the wish of anyone close to us. James warns us, the tongue is a fire. It is a world of evil among the parts of the body. 
It corrupts the whole person. It sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. With it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. James 3, verse 6 and following. I think many a divorce can trace its roots to an untamed tongue. A tongue that's full of accusations and belittlement and cursing and lies and slander. and You know, once the structure has been burned to the ground, ashes are all that remain. And like Humpty Dumpty, all king's horses and all the king's men can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. You're just left with a pile of ash. I'm sure that Abraham and Sarah had some tense moments in their marriage. I mean, think about it. Two times, Abraham claimed Sarah as his sister to protect his own neck from what he assumed would be his demise if the kings of the land wanted to take Sarah to wife for themselves and by doing so kill him to get her. And then there was Sarah's solution for her own barrenness. She married off Hagar to Abraham, who afterwards despised her, the scripture says. So then what did she do? She later sent Hagar away with Ishmael to guard her own son's inheritance. This is all not very good behavior. I think all couples go through these times of anger and frustration and tension. And if they're allowed to fester, they can result in much bitterness. But guess what? We don't see this in our text. Abraham does not act as though he's pleased or that he's at peace with Sarah's death. Oh, she's gone. Good riddance. No, there's none of that. Instead, he weeps over her, verse 2. He's beside his deaf wife, dead wife, verse 3, because there's no other place he'd rather be. The man is in mourning, verse 2. His bride, his wife, whose beauty attracted the attention of kings is no more. And he deeply senses her loss. Wise man Solomon writes, there's a time to weep and there is a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 4. And concerning life in general, he tells us, Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, 
all the days of this meaningless life that God has given to you under the sun. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. For in the grave where you are going, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9 and following. The unexpected brethren, includes evil times as well as good times. We are reading this text. We're not told of Sarah that she had been ill for a long time. That's not said. Or if she just died of old age. That's kind of implied. But when she died, Abraham honored her by mourning and weeping over her. That's the first way he honored her. Secondly, he honored her by arranging a proper burial for her. When I was growing up in rural region of Pennsylvania, it was not uncommon to look out upon a farmer's land and see a squared or rectangular area fenced in by wooden or wrought iron fencing with a small entrance gate. These were burial plots in which the landowner would bury his dead. You could do that back then. And several generations could be found in the burial plot. Oh yeah, there were cemeteries as well, but these were usually for city folk whose livelihood did not involve farming or anything con uh, like ranching or whatever. But Abraham is a rancher. He possesses vast herds of livestock, so much so that the Hittites in our text refer to him saying, verse 6, Sir, you are a mighty prince among us. That was true. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. What a generous offer on the basis of the Hittites. And how evident that is of speaking of Abraham's character. That they would do that for him. Or want to do that. This was Abraham's... <clears throat> 
This was their response to Abraham's request, verse 4. He had said to them, sell me some property. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dad. Wait a minute. (laughs) Abraham is a mighty prince. He's a rancher with thousands of animals. But he owns no land in which to bury Sarah. Are, are we reading this right? Why doesn't he own some land? I mean, if the Hittites have burial sites, why doesn't Abraham? Well, in his own words, verse 4, I am an alien and a stranger among you. An alien and a stranger. See, he doesn't own land. All his wealth has been tied up in livestock and servants. He was what we would call a free grazer. Which was the way many ranchers fed their cattle and their sheep. They just roamed the landscape from place to place with their livestock. But they didn't own the land that they roamed. writer of Hebrews makes a point of this saying. Let me read it for you. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 11, verse 9. In other words, he was a Bedouin, a nomad, wanderer. He made his living off the land, but the land was not deeded to him. This lifestyle had served him well, very well, up until now. Now, the inevitable had come. Now, his wife had died. He needed a burial plaque. By the way, do you notice in the Bible, burial, not cremation, was the preferred way of honoring the dead. Notice even the Hittites had their own Tombs, verse 5. A portion for their family members when the time came. But Abraham didn't own so much as one lonely cave. Long story short, Abraham negotiated with a man named Ephron to buy a field containing a cave in which he could bury Sarah. These negotiations were conducted at the city gate. Verse 10, you know from our study, that's where all the magistrates were. That's where things were done legally. The back and forth exchange between Abraham and Ephron 
is here, where Ephron offers the land for free. Abraham says, no, I'll pay you the price. And Abraham comes back, verse 14, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. What's going on here? This is the Oriental way of negotiating. I'll pay you the price. Oh, no, no, no. It's only worth 400 shekels. Oh, 400 shekels. Okay. They're going back and forth. They don't want to come right out and say, pay me 400 shekels. It's a a lovely way of negotiating. You state your price without being in your face about it. Verse 16, Abraham agreed to Ephraim's terms. See? They're working it out. Verse 17, So Ephraim's field and Machabal, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. That's where the magistrates did their business. And afterward, Abraham buried his wife, Sarah, in the cave. Later, Abraham would be buried there alongside of Sarah by Isaac and Ishmael, his sons. Genesis 25, verse 9. Later still, Jacob requested to be buried there with his own father and mother, Isaac and Rebekah had been buried with Abraham and Sarah. So what happened here is that the cave become became a family sepulcher. The whole family's buried in this cave. Must have been quite a cave. But they didn't have they didn't own any property. This was the land of the Hittites. God worked it out. Now, what do we learn about the deceased who go to be with God? Number one, that death comes to all. And the experience is one of shared sorrow. I have a funeral this week with Pastor Loker's funeral that I have to do. Comes to all. It is a universal truism made clear by the Apostle Paul. In Adam all die. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22. Which means all those related to Adam are destined to die. So since death is universal, it is is a given that we are all related to Adam as our baseline progenitor. Death was a part of God's curse on Adam and Eve. And the tentacles of death reach into every age, every nation, every race, every family, every home. It has nothing to do with how righteous you are or how wicked you are. You're going to die. Unless Christ comes. You know about that one exception. Solomon, the wise man, put it this way. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. 
As it is with the good man, so it is with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so it is with those that are afraid to take oaths. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all, writes Solomon. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil. There is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterwards they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. I mean, even a live dog is better than a dead lion. This is Solomon still speaking. For the living know that they will die, but the dead, they know nothing. They have no further reward. I'm reading scripture. They have no further reward. Even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun on earth. Boy, doesn't that say a lot about what people think about the dead. They're dead. Their moms and dads, their relatives. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 2 and 5. Oh, my dad's looking down on me. Oh, my mom's looking down on me. No, they're not. No, they're not. I mean, what part? The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. What part of nothing don't we understand? They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. We're reading scripture here. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have any part in anything that happens under the sun. In our world, under the sun. Boy, is our country full of a lot of pagan superstition or what when it comes to death. And I think it's the deception of the evil one. Keep people guessing and speculating to make them feel better about death. Death is not our friend, the scripture says. It is our enemy. People don't see it. Solomon also addresses the role of intelligence by pointing out that no one can avoid the consequences of death because they're wise. Let me read it for you. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in darkness, but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. And then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man, too, must die. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 14 and following. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says, It is appointed to men 
to die once, and after that to face judgment. Well, Abraham connected with the Hittites and idolatrous people over the death of his wife, Sarah. It was as though Sarah's funeral became a bonding factor in Abraham's life that was to carry him through many generations. Believer or unbeliever, we share the narrow sorrow of death, and it may very well be your avenue of testimony for the gospel in a world where all die, but one in which all are not prepared to die. Jesus made the biblical position clear when discussing death and the resurrection. Here's what he said. But about the resurrection of the dead, you have, have you not read that God said to you, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. What's the import? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Not I was, as though now they're gone and their relationship with me is no longer valid. No. I am, right now, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus went on to say, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So there's our interpretation. When the crowd heard this, they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Matthew 22, verse 31 to follow. You know, once dead, all hope of life eternal ends. David put it this way. He's speaking to God and he says, Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry out to you for help, O Lord, in the morning. My prayers come before you, the new day. That's when I talk to you and I know you're hearing and you're interceding in my life. Psalm 88, verse 10 and following. Jesus teaches us that God is the God of the living and not of the dead. And David is saying, I'm not dead yet. And so I can pray. And I can petition God for his mercy. And I can have the assurance that God will answer me when I cry out to him. Abraham's request to buy land for a burial plot touched the hearts of his neighbors and demonstrated that he too was a man who had to wrestle with death like them, and perhaps this emboldened them to observe his faith through his pain as a gift of God. 
and they appreciated him. Secondly, though buried in the land of Canaan, Sarah's homecoming was to God's dwelling. We read, by faith he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews 11, verse 9 and 10. Verse 13 and following, the same chapter, Hebrews 11. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. So you see that means that Canaan was not the land promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted, they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. They reason, <laughs> this earth cannot be home. This earth cannot be home. We're, we're not putting our roots down in this place called earth. And then the writer of Hebrews interprets for us. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Now, if they had been thinking... Of the country they had left, that was Ur, you remember, their homestead, Ur of the Chaldees. They would have had opportunity to return, writes this author. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Hebrews 11, verse 13 and following. Can you believe this? These Old Testament saints had figured it out by faith. We're not talking about cows, cows and sheep grazing on the land of Canaan. That's, this is not our homestead. This is not what we're looking for. We're longing for a better country. We're longing for a heavenly one. Their words, not mine. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. How did they call themselves? Well, they said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And God's saying, I don't mind that they tack me to them the God of Abraham the God of Isaac the God of Jacob no I am their God that's how the God of the Bible was identified and distinguished among the nations oh they had their idols you remember Baal, Asheroth, Molech, Ra, Isis. The designation for the biblical God, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, contrasted that. Who, who names their God after some human historical 
figure. God did. Exodus 3.16, in identifying himself to Moses at the burning bush, the writer of Hebrews tells us that God was not ashamed to be called their God. Why not? Because these three men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, along with their godly wives, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, were people whose faith in God was genuine and sincere and committed to what God had promised them. They didn't doubt. They believed. Faith pleases God. God was pleased with them. Happy to have them identify with him. Wow. If now we connect this thought with Jesus' words, that God is not the God of the dead but of the living, we see this in the name I am. I am. Not I was. Not I will become. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These faithful people were still living by faith when they died. Hebrews eleven thirteen says. Alive? Jesus is saying, God is not the God of the dead. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute now. I'm trying to figure this out. Abraham died, and Isaac died, and Jacob died, and if that if they died, then they're dead, right? They are no more. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, wrong. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. God says, I am, not I will become, not I was. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So in our text, Sarah was living though dead. Alive while buried in a cave. She had preceded Abraham in arriving at the genuine promised land, think of it, which none see except through the eye of faith. It's the better country, it's the heavenly country, whose city was built by God on the strong foundation of Jesus Christ, the rock that never moves. So the cave in Ephraim's field, think about this, the cave in Ephraim's field or the grave at Metamore Cemetery or Thornville Cemetery or a rectangular quadrant in a farmer's field enclosed by a wrought iron fence, no matter. What are these? They are simply places where we bury the dead, but for every believer it's to be away from the body, is to be instantly at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. That's where they are. And even of that dead and decaying body, Paul explains, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will 
transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the faith in the Lord, dear friends. Philippians 3, 20 and following. When we die, we go instantly at home with the Lord. We don't go into a holding ground like purgatory, which is taught by Rome. We don't go into utter nothingness as okay. When you die, that's it. That's the end. No, it's not the end. It's the beginning of a new way of living. Or, if you're an unbeliever, a new way of dying. As a final lesson here, I would say that mourning for our deceased loved ones, as here with Abraham for Sarah, is tempered with joy and hope. It's tempered with joy and hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and after that we, who are still alive and are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, says Paul, encourage each other with these words. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and following. Did we get that? God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. What? The proof that our loved ones who knew the Lord went to be with him, right? And so if he comes while we're still alive, he brings those loved ones back with him and we can see them and hear them and rejoice in them. This will be our home going if, like Sarah and Abraham and the rest of the believers in past ages, our faith is as genuine as theirs. As heavenly minded as theirs. As anticipatory of the new heaven and the new earth wherein righteousness and only righteousness dwells. Will you be in that number? That's my prayer. You should be. You can be. If you're trusting Christ Jesus as the full payment for your sin and the rightful Lord of your life. Paul put it this way. No eye has seen and no ear has heard. No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. You know, the Bible does speak about heaven, things about heaven. 
but I gotta tell you, it's rather scanty. It is. Rather scanty about what it says heaven is like. We get little glimpses here and there, mostly I think in Paul's writings, some in John's writing, in the Revelation, so forth. But we're told we we can't see the glories that are coming, that we're destined for. Why was that? Well, I think it would kill anticipation if God said, well, let me tell you what heaven is like. Number one, number two, number three, and went through a hundred list or whatever. No, he just says, you know, it's beyond your imagination. It's beyond what you can ask. It's beyond what you can think. It's special. It's prepared for you. That whets our appetite, our spiritual appetite. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The more I think about the evilness of our world and the decay of our society, the more I think, Lord, just come take me home. But then I have ulterior motives, too. I think, well, I want to see all my grandkids come to know the Lord. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see our church that have people that don't know the Lord come. To, I'd like to see them come to know the Lord. I'd like to see that. I'd like to hear that. I don't know if that's going to occur. But I'm just saying what I'd like to see. But either way, whether I see or not, what is going to be is going to be. God's grace is going to be showered upon whom he will shower it. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Those are his words. And we're told to comfort one another with those words. Spiritual realities is that heaven is real, hell is real. What's it going to be for you? Lord, we thank you for your word. You tell it like it is. You give us the, the, the bright side of it, and you tell us the dark side of it. And we're given the responsibility to choose the truth. We can say, well, my truth says, yeah, well, when we do the my truth thing, what we're really saying is that I know best. And we don't know anything. And when we die, we're not going to know anything. I pray, Lord, that you will give us knowledge now while we still have breath, while we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, draw us effectually into your kingdom. Save whom you will today. In Christ's name, with thanksgiving we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is 418 in the hymnal. Four eighteen.
listening to a lot of people that have stepped out of the service, so my question is, how many of us are planning on staying for communion? Should we move it to next week because of how little we are? What do you, what's the consensus? Move it? Or some some people saying move it because they have to leave. Let's go ahead and plan on that. Okay, then we'll move it to next week. Those watching the stream, we'll move to next week. Uh, no evening service tonight, though, because there wasn't anything planned for this evening. Uh, and we'll we'll follow that pattern for next week then. Okay. Thank you. Number 418, um, I don't know this, and neither does Jared, so he's going to play it through once for us, and we'll learn it kind of together, and then we'll sing after he plays it once all the way through, after he looks at it first. But 418, in the brown, all your anxiety. This fills me with anxiety.
that's where we should dump all of our anxieties, that's for sure. Can we solve them? No. Reminded that Jesus invited us to cast our burdens upon him. Our Father, we thank you for that truth. We can't resolve the burdens of our heart. Because a lot of the burdens have to do with our own personal sin. We can't take the sin away. But we can plead for your mercy. We can ask you to forgive and to cleanse us and to set our feet solidly upon the rock of Christ. Hide us in the cleft of the rock. Free us from the snares of the evil one. Don't let him have victory in our lives. We want to be proper living testimonies for Jesus. But how can that be if hypocrisy is the main thing that people see in us? I pray that you will forgive us for that and I pray that you will grant us a clean heart, a willing spirit, and strength by your Holy Spirit to live a holy life. We do pray for the lost. We pray for our families. We pray for our friends and relatives. We pray for the sick of our church. We're asking that you, Lord, would show yourself strong in all these areas. Put the devil's attempts to weaken us and to discourage us. As we sang in this song, all of our anxieties. We, we, we are full of anxieties. There's political problems in our country. There's health problems. There's all kinds of things going on. Spiritual problems. We're struggling in so many areas. There's only one Savior, and that is you. And you can pull us through all of these things. You did so with the disciples of old, and pray that you'll do so with the disciples today. Us, your children, we do take the name of God. I am to our hearts. We do follow after the organized thoughts of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were not ashamed to call you their God. We too are not ashamed. We bless thee. In Jesus' name, amen.